Well, I'm thrilled that Gary Stein has joined us here today on, on Wrecking Ball, which is a series of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast, where we consider uh, the tales behind preservation, um, the law, and the cities within New York State that, that we love. And um, it's interesting that Gary Stein has joined us here today because he has written a, uh, a new book, um, a new book where the courthouse is one of the characters. Um, but the central figure in this book is a gentleman um, who I envision in a cartoon that you sort of find in the middle of Gary's book, um, which is entitled Justice for Sale, where there's a judge sitting up on his bench. And below that bench is a different bench with a ladder and it's labeled personal holding company. And below that is another one that says private corporation and another one that says loans accepted. Um, Gary, what on earth am I talking about here and who on earth am I talking about? Uh, well, that's a very good good image, the cartoon that you point out that ran in January 1939 yeah. when uh, Judge Martin Manton's secret life, uh, essentially, as a corrupt judge, was exposed uh, to the public uh, as a result of an enterprising uh, reporter at what was then the New York World Telegram. And the, the cartoon is, is very apt. Manton was the and not just a judge on the, the Second Circuit. He was the senior circuit judge uh, and had been so for uh, 12 years, uh, had been uh, a federal judge uh, for 23 years uh, almost. He was the youngest uh, judge appointed uh, to the federal district court back in 1916. And by the time of that cartoon, he had essentially built an empire uh, based on corruption. Uh, this was the era of the of the racket um, mm. underworld, everybody exacting tribute uh, in all sorts of different businesses. And Manton did that in his own way as a judge. He was essentially running a justice racket and he was sitting on top of it. And it was not a one man band. He had a whole network of fixers uh, who went out and solicited uh, people to pay bribes. And of course, uh, all of the various people who, who, who pay bribes uh, were part of the scheme uh, as well. So it was kind of a vast enterprise as that cartoon depicts. And it's, it's set in this very unique uh, crucible of New York City history because the cover of your book, Justice for Sale, has this picture of Judge Manton um, right next to a picture of that monumental courthouse at 40 Foley Square by Cass Gilbert, the same architect who designed our Supreme Courthouse of the United States. Tell us a little bit about Foley Square and this sort of seedy, rackety underworld of New York where Judge Manton operated at the time. Well, uh, where Foley Square is currently situated used to be known as the Five Points uh, District of Manhattan, which was just a, a den of iniquity uh, back in the 19th century. Um, I, you had uh, uh, all sorts of, of hoodlums and, and gangsters and vice of every conceivable uh, description uh, taking place there. That ultimately was reshaped uh, largely by the building of, of courthouses, not just, uh, of course, the federal courthouse uh, at 40 Foley Square, um, but also the um, state courthouse at, at 60 Center Street and the other public buildings that sprouted up and eventually uh, evicted the you know, uh, various uh, characters um, who once prowled uh, the Five Points District, and really the Five Points, which is Five Points District uh, doesn't exist um, anymore. But it's interesting because Manton, um, in a way, uh, shows that some of the characteristics 
um, that prevailed in the Five Points uh, District uh, didn't didn't go away just because um, this monumental federal courthouse was built in Foley Square, which, by the way, Foley Square itself uh, is named after a, a Tammany uh, politician named Tom Foley. Big Tom. Uh, <laughs> Big Tom. Um, who, um, it should be said, uh, although he was uh, very much uh, a part of the Tammany machine and uh, helped run the machine, uh, he personally did not, it appears, uh, profit in the same way that uh, most Tammany politicians did. And Manton really followed in that tradition of, of, of a Tammany politician. He had sort of grown up uh, in that community and he viewed public office as an opportunity not just to serve the public, but to uh, line his own pockets, unfortunately. But that was that was sort of um, understood um, and and even um, you know not denied uh, by the Tammany politicians of of the era. They sort of were made no bones about the fact that they used public office as an opportunity to make some money. Mm, exactly, and he was in this sort of mix. But then there were other landmarks in his life as well. He lived on this Long Island estate. He had investments in hotel properties. He was involved with the founding of the neighborhood of Forest Hills, which of course today is portions of it are landmarked as well. Um, tell us more about his reach, his tentacles throughout New York City and state. It's, it, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you have to give him credit for um, having a, a lot of energy. Here's <laughs> a, a federal judge. Um, he actually wrote more opinions on the Second Circuit sort of, you know, per annum than any judge in its history. Wow. And he was also, as the senior judge, saddled with all these administrative uh, responsibilities. Mm. He was a very active uh, participant in the Catholic Church. He was knighted by the Pope um, at one point. And on top of all of that, he basically ran his own business enterprise as a judge and owned interests in all sorts of companies. Uh, real estate, as you said, a couple of uh, uh, significant apartment hotels on the Upper West Side, a company in Syracuse that made sanitary napkins, uh, among other things, um, a, a milk bottling company, uh, uh, laundries, and on and on and on. You know, we don't expect that uh, from our, our judges, uh, from our federal judges in, in particular. And back then, um, you know, it, it did stand out. Certainly his colleagues on the Second Circuit, uh, the Hand Cousins, um, Thomas Swan, did not engage in such activities. But uh, he did on a, very, uh, on, a, on a very large scale. And ultimately that helped uh, get him into trouble because when the businesses started failing and the real estate investments started going south um, after the crash of 1929, he um, resorted to uh, raising money from litigants and lawyers who were appearing before him. Right. And, and you're saying quite euphemistically, he's raising money from these litigants. He used another euphemism that he favored. He would call them loans um, from folks who had business before the court. And yes, Manton was this prolific um, author of judicial opinions, and he was the chief and all that. Um, but you share an interesting anecdote in your book where you say um, that folks who are clerking within the Second Circuit today are expressly instructed never to cite a Manton opinion. And it sounds as if he was also a notoriously bad writer at that. Um, so two reasons not to cite him, the dustiness of his prose, but also um, his criminal conviction. So you've set the stage for us um, of the pressures on Manton um, during this Great Depression era, um, where he looked 
for these loans and other uh, emoluments. Uh, but tell us the central controversy that ended up bringing Manton down. Um, what was this criminal case that he faced ultimately? Well, uh, the criminal case uh, that he ultimately faced uh, was based on six different cases where he had taken uh, loans uh, or just outright <laughs> payments uh, or bribes. Most of them were patent cases uh, where he took uh, money from, from, from one side. One of them was a criminal case, uh, actually, uh, where the defendant was a patent lawyer um, who had bribed Manton uh, uh, by making loans to him in connection with appeals he had before the Second Circuit. He happened to be the chairman of a Brooklyn bank and arranged for the bank uh, to make loans to, to, to Manton right at the same time Manton was presiding uh, over those cases. And then he got in trouble himself and was charged uh, with, of all things, bribery um, and went to see Manton uh, to see if Manton could help. And Manton said, yes, I, I can help. Um, I will bring in a, a district judge from Connecticut um, and he will get rid of your case uh, for the price of $10,000. And that's that's what happened. The patent lawyer, whose name is John Losh, went to Manton's chambers with the cash, delivered it to him there. Manton dialed up his safe. He actually kept a safe in his chambers uh, <laughs> in uh, 40 Foley Square, and he tucked the cash inside. And then the um, judge who was brought in from Connecticut, granted a motion by uh, Losh's lawyers to uh, dismiss the case after the jury was impaneled. Mm. So the government had no right of uh, of appeal. Those were the cases that, um, you know, the, the indictment were, was, was based on, but it really is just the tip of the iceberg. There were many, many other cases um, where Manton uh, took payments, loans, bribes that were not part of the charges at the trial. And th those have come about in part from the cross-examination that did take place at the trial when Manton testified, in part from subsequent discoveries, in part from research that I did in connection with the book at the National Archives um, right. that revealed schemes that have never before seen the light of day to my knowledge. Oh my goodness, it's, it's so sprawling and so brazen and so bold, especially when you consider all of the other areas where his fingers were involved, right? I mean, he, um, he's this figure who's this procedural master and you just described um, the way in which there's a jury impaneled, but he makes a decision and there's no right of appeal and he's essentially um, getting people stuck with whatever his corrupt decision is. Um, how, how else was he this procedural master in, in locking in these victories for his um, corrupt clients? Well, there's a almost comical uh, incident, which I relate in the book, involving one of these patent cases that was mm. the subject of the trial, where the lawyers for the other side, uh, they actually represented the, the Schick Razor company, which was bringing a patent infringement suit against another company. And the, uh, the executive at the other company, sort of a wily entrepreneurial type named uh, Archie Andrews, was paying off Manton. Mm. And the lawyers for Schick, who were pretty savvy, suspected this at some point. And when the uh, case was scheduled for argument in the Court of Appeals, they tried to, uh, it was initially set on a day when Manton was one of the judges sitting, they tried to move it to a different date, uh, when he was not sitting. And they uh, actually got the uh, support of the lawyer for the defendant, who evidently was not in on the scheme. And the lawyer for the defendant said, oh, yeah, that, that's fine. We can move it to that date. <laughs> and Manton looks at the lawyers for Schick and, and says, no, we're not going to do it then. We're going <laughs> to keep it on the date that, that I want. 
So, you know, one of the sort of, you know, oddities and uh, mysteries almost in a way of Manton's corruption is that he was a, an appeals court judge. And of course, federal appellate courts then as today sit in panels of three. So his vote alone um, could not uh, tilt a case one uh, in, in, in the direction of the person paying him uh, the money. He needed the support of at least one other judge, but he was able to use his administrative powers to help shape the outcome of these cases, for example, by sitting on the case. Another area where he where he did that is he had a practice of appointing himself uh, as uh, a district judge to preside over big equity receiverships at the time, the equivalent of uh, what we would call bankruptcy today. And there he really had all the powers of, of a district judge and would do things like, for example, steer contracts to firms in which uh, his relatives had had an interest, his sister and niece. And it was just a basic kickback scheme that he was able to engineer from his perch as a district judge in those cases. Wow, a procedural master indeed. And um, and speaking of relatives, um, some of my relatives play a little bit part in your book as yes. well. Um, because of course, Manton at this time, he's involved with railroads a bunch, right? We, we're all familiar with everything that railroads did to build this country and Manton's involved in Long Island Railroad tort cases. Um, there's a bit of a bribery in a parlor car on the Long Island Railroad that you describe. And um, he's also involved with the subway system in New York where my great, great grandfather and his son, uh, my great-grandfather, so Samuel Untermeyer and Erwin Untermeyer, um, were trying to keep this five-cent fare um, for the subways in New York to keep things sustainable for the riding public. And there's a, a longtime family legend about um, what uh, I think it was Mayor LaGuardia called the judge who lost his head and signed the order, um, basically lifting the five-cent fare. Um, this case ends up at the Supreme Court and Manton's panel is reversed, I believe. Um, tell us a little bit about that episode with Samuel Untermeyer and Manton and the Transit Commission and the Five Cent Fair. Yeah, and what's really interesting about this case, which was not part of the trial, um, never anything that um, he was actually charged with, uh, is that it took place in uh, 1928. So this mm. is before the crash uh, of 1929. And um, Manton has generally been viewed as someone who fell prey uh, to uh, the depression and the financial pressures that put on him to resort to corruption. And I, I alluded to that earlier in this podcast, but that's not really the full story because this, in this case, 1928, which was a hugely important case, the um, IRT um, was challenging the constitutionality of the, of the five cent subway fare. And, um, Manton was on a panel, a special court, a three-judge uh, court, uh, that heard the case. He wrote the opinion. He wrote in favor of the IRT and uh, the other uh, subway company that was a that was a party, and said, "Yes, this is confiscatory uh, under uh, then prevailing Supreme Court precedent, and uh, the five cent fare should be no more." Notwithstanding the fact that the um, subway lines had agreed to it in their own contracts uh, with the city. Just a few days before that case was brought, uh, Manton took a $75,000 investment from a lawyer uh, named Thomas Chadbourne, with whom your great-great-grandfather, Samuel Untermeyer, had uh, clashed at a um, public hearing, uh, your great-great-grandfather uh, uh, having represented uh, the Transit uh, Commission. And uh, Chadbourne had a substantial uh, financial interest uh, in, in, in the railroads, and he wanted to get rid of the five cent fare. It does not seem like a coincidence, 
that just before the suit was brought, he arranged this $75,000 investment, which of course, you know, back at the time, that's, that's more like, you know, $1.5 million uh, today in one of um, Manton's companies. I view that as a, a, an early case and a pre-crash, pre-depression uh, example of, of Manton's corruptions. It was all done sort of um, in secret. There were sort of nominee directors uh, mm. appointed who uh, were um, functionaries at the Chadbourne law firm. And, and, and by the way, this is Thomas Chadbourne of what became the Chadbourne Park, one of the you know, great law firms in our city. And I didn't realize this actually till uh, I, I um, was uh, researching your family for this podcast. But as, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court ultimately reversed uh, Manton's decision. And what I had not realized is that although your great, great, grandfather, Samuel Untermeyer, had sort of led the charge in, in, in the litigation and re representing the Transit Commission. Um, he got sick before the Supreme Court argument. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you know this. Yes, I do. <laughs> and your great-grandfather, Irwin, actually um, conducted the oral argument and won. Yeah, and the story goes that there were only two interruptions during oral argument, and that was to request page numbers in the brief. So something tells me um, it was a rather straightforward case, um, hence LaGuardia's comment about the judges having lost their heads or um, taking investments, as uh, Manton may have called it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it, it was uh, a very unusual uh, case in that regard. You know, all of the, ultimately, the Supreme Court said, well, this, re this really belongs and should be decided by the New York state courts. Mm -hmm. And every single state court and every single judge on every single state court, uh, all the way up the ladder that considered the issue, all ruled uh, against uh, the IRT and the transit companies and in favor of the five cent fare. And it's, you know, M Manton grew up as a political, you know, progressive, uh, essentially. He, he, his practice, he did not represent corporations. He sued corporations. He was, uh, had a big personal injury practice um, and he was a big supporter of President Wilson and sort of a thorn in the side of, of corporations. And, you know, here we have this case where he rules in favor of the corporate interests in a way that was obviously against uh, the wishes of even of the Tammany uh, politicians like uh, Governor Al Smith. But I think in this particular case, whatever, you know, ideological and political uh, leanings uh, Manton had were shoved aside by his financial self-interest. Yeah, and I have to tell you that that is one of the joys of this book, because whether it's a family connection or a preservation connection, whether it's a legal issue or anything else, there's so much for people who are historians, historically minded to connect with in this book. And I, I wonder what drew you to the subject matter. Um, you've, you've obviously been in and around the circuit, your legal career, uh, but why Manton and why this book and why now? It's a good question. And the answer is kind of lost to the... <laughs> <laughs> the time I, I started this uh, a long time ago, um, uh, and I mean the short answer for why I started it, I think, is that my my kids grew up and went to college, and uh, right. <laughs> it became sort of my project on the on the weekends. I, I remember Banton from law school. I remember hearing about him. I somehow I, I bought a book called The Corrupt Judge, which was, hmm. was written in the 1960s by a former DOJ lawyer, which is a, a, about Manton, but also two other judges. Um, who were involved in various corrupt schemes uh, at the time. And um, it sort of intrigued me. It, it's a good book, but it really just is sort of recites what happened at the trial and those in those six cases. Um, it didn't really address who Manton was, where he came right. from, uh, what motivated him to do this. Um, a federal judge, senior circuit judge on the Second Circuit. And it also... Um, 
didn't really um, say anything about the people who were paying him bribes, uh, which mm. I was so interested in because, you know, it takes two to tango um, <laughs> to, to commit bribery. So I was also interested in knowing who, who those people were and how uh, they had come to commit these acts. Right. And, um, you know, Manton, he's remembered for this corruption. He, of course, is convicted. Um, he serves his prison term, I believe. How does he end his life? He ended his life, you know, really quietly. After he was released from prison in, uh, I think it was 1941, he left New York. He moved out near Syracuse, where his son was uh, running this uh, sanitary napkin uh, company that I, that I mentioned before. And um, no one really heard, heard much from him. And he passed away in November of 1946. The obituaries were, you know, not, not exactly what he had hoped for um, uh, when he was sitting on the Second Circuit. Right. Um, and, and it's a tangled and tumultuous legacy, but uh, we're so grateful that you've brought it to light for us today. And I think um, a lot of us after reading this book will be wondering, could it happen again today? Um, what are your parting thoughts on that point? Judges are human beings. Um, right. Of course, it can happen uh, again. Um, you know, we tend to deify judges. I think on both sides of the of the political spectrum. Ronald Dworkin, uh, who was one of my, my my professors in law school, had this whole thing of the judge as Hercules, you know, sort mm. of this omniscient, you know, super person. And then you have Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, on the other side, having this ideal of the judge as an as an umpire who just calls balls and strikes, sort of an <laughs> automaton. Uh, that is devoid of any you know, sort of uh, personal beliefs or passions um, or prejudices, and neither of those images is is realistic. Judges are are human beings, and this book um, and uh, Manton uh, really reminds us of that. And I, I think we should be reminded of that. Well, I'm not just saying this because you gave me loans or investments, but it's a fantastic read. Um, the book is Justice for Sale. Graft Greed and a Crooked Federal Judge in 1930s Gotham. And we're so pleased it's brought um, Gary Stein to us. Um, we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, um, we will enjoy our favorite segment, your daily Ada Louise. Um, please join us just after the break. Wrecking Ball is brought to you by the Historical Society of the New York Courts, which is dedicated to preserving just that, New York's vast legal history. For more information about that important group, just Google. Historical Society of the New York Courts, or visit history.nycourts.gov. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are here with Gary Stein, the author of Justice for Sale, Graft, Greed, and a Crooked Federal Judge in 1930s Gotham. Uh, Gary, the book is just fantastic. And uh, before we let you go, we want to make sure that you uh, you participate in our little segment that we call your Daily Ada Louise, um, which is a tribute um, to a great uh, lioness in the city of New York and the state of New York who cared about preservation, the law, um, and the cities where it all takes place. Um, Ada Louise Huxtable, of course, that longtime New York Times architectural critic um, with so many legendary quotes about the built environment of our city. And Gary, I asked you to bring along a quote that might resonate with you. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the quote and why you picked it? Yes, uh, I, I picked it uh, because it resonates, to me at least, uh, in terms of um, the Manton story and, and what you um, alluded to before, which is the way in which uh, the courthouse itself, uh, the federal courthouse, uh, became sort of a character in the book and was actually sort of a character at, at Manton's trial. Let me read the quote sure. from a 
November 1974 article by Ms. Huxtable uh, in the New York Times. And she wrote as follows, the public building that serves and symbolizes the institutions of government has always striven for dignity, monumentality, a suggestion of art and an indication of the nobler aspects and ideals of man. Or it did until recently. Mm. One look at most of today's public buildings suggests that somewhere on the way from the 19th to the 20th century, a lot of values got lost. And then skipping down, she continues, what goes up in their place, you know, in the place of these monumental um, government buildings can rarely be differentiated from average, read cheap, commercial construction with a sign over the door to tell the visitor that he is indeed in city hall or the seat of country or state government or a place where the ideals and processes of justice are housed. And then she adds in a parenthetical phrase, you can hardly blame him if he begins to wonder if the ideals and processes are any better than the building. Mm. And um, so, you know, she suggests that the sort of association between the nature of a public building, including a courthouse, and what goes on inside. And I think a lot of us share that notion that a lot of the courthouses are built in this classical style that evoke uh, what Peter Louise called uh, the ideals of justice or the majesty uh, of the law. And certainly the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal courthouse at mm -hmm. Foley Square, both of which, as you pointed out, were designed by uh, Cass Gilbert, are, are great examples of that. And, you know, the, the federal courthouse is uh, fronted by these 10 sort of four-story massive Corinthian columns. And, you know, you walk up uh, the granite steps and which, of course, I've done uh, many times as a, as a lawyer, and it, it does give you a kind of charge. And it really, I think, played a role in Manton's uh, trial uh, because Manton's prosecutor, who was John Cahill, uh, founder of the Cahill, uh, Gordon and Rindell uh, firm, essentially made it into a, like a inanimate character witness for the, the prosecution. Yes. Um, in his uh, closing statement, um, he talked about how brokers and brewers and moneylenders uh, were lugging cash into this very courthouse um, and how Manton had turned it instead of a courthouse into a counting house. Mm. And you know, remember, that, that's the very courthouse where the trial was held. And it's the very courthouse where Manton did everything that he did. Uh, that's a slight exaggeration because uh, that didn't open until 1936. And some of his schemes stretched back before then. Um, but uh, Cahill powerfully played off this notion of the courthouse as an embodiment of our ideals of justice to draw the contrast with how Manton, you know, defiled and besmirched and, and soiled uh, those very ideals. So I think, you know, Huxtable may have overstated things a bit in suggesting that having, you know, a noble courthouse is associated with or is even more likely to produce uh, noble deeds uh, mm. then. Uh, may maybe it is more likely. It certainly doesn't mean that that's what will happen because uh, whether we live up to our ideals of, ju of justice ultimately isn't a matter of, of brick and mortar. It's a matter of, of flesh and blood and what human beings do. Absolutely. And if we can leave things for our audience with one of those illuminating tales in your book about the narrow judge's elevators in the back of uh, that courthouse there. I, I will never forget the first time that I was in one of those elevators. Um, it, it is small, it's tiny, it's only enough room for one, two, maybe three people if you really suck it in. Um, and when Manton goes to his trial and his sentencing in that courthouse, what happens with those elevators? 
Well, of course, he was not a judge uh, at that point. He was an ex-judge. <laughs> right. But uh, he did not uh, quite get the memo. And so he took the judge's elevator. And when the actual judges, uh, then on the Second Circuit, his former colleagues, Judge Le Leonard Hand, Judge uh, uh, Gus Hand, learned about that, they were absolutely livid. Um, it was sort of the last straw for them, you know, the final <laughs> act of desecration uh, by this judge who had done um, this horrible thing to the court that they loved and served for most of their lives. Right, but that, that building remains a tribute to the Manton legacy, um, a tribute to everything folks have done in the years since to move past the Manton legacy and a reminder to all of us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate all the work that you and the Historical Society of the New York Courts do to bring attention to subjects like this.